0: Welcome to the BadgerCast, a podcast by the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. I'm Ryan Owens, the director of the Thompson Center. Thanks for joining us today. All right, welcome, everybody. Uh, We're pleased to have uh, Mike Murphy with us today. As many of you, probably most of you know, Mike Murphy is one of the Republican Party's most successful political consultants, having handled strategy and advertising for more than 26 successful gubernatorial and senatorial campaigns he ran john mccain's 2000 presidential bid arnold schwarzenegger's 2003 gubernatorial campaign and spearheaded jeb bush's 2016 campaign he recently gave a presentation at the thompson center in uh, madison wisconsin here and uh, we're pleased to have him back with us to 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 talk a little bit more about politics and, and where we are today so welcome mike thanks for being here well, thank you
1: for having me, and thank you for that uh, excellent introduction. We left a few of the uh, uh, the fiascos off. I, I have one footnote on it. I um, I actually ran the super PAC in two thousand sixteen, not the actual campaign uh, for Jeb, but um, I I was the knucklehead who blew through hundred million bucks. So right. <laughs> we we tried, and we we were short in votes and delegates, but long on being able to sleep afterward because we haven't. Uh, we haven't done anything to bring, you know, I'm a never Trumper. We haven't done anything to bring kind of that, uh, that fungus upon the Republican Party. Wow. And I worked for Jeb when he was uh, governor. I did both of his successful gubernatorial races, so he's I someday have a very high regard of. But I also have a great regard for Wisconsin and the Thompson Center. So it's great to talk to you.
0: Well, you know, we're pleased to have you. And, you know, let's let's stay on that theme here uh, with Jeb Bush here for a second. So in 2000, you know, you helped out, uh, you ran that McCain campaign against George W. Bush, and then you wound up working on Jeb Bush's gubernatorial campaigns. Uh, you were highly successful there. How was that actually, working on Jeb's campaign after having sort of worked against uh, George W. Bush's campaign?
1: Well, yeah, Jeb was always great. So the, the, the chronology on that is kind of interesting. So in 1998, uh Jeb ran for the second time he'd run in 94 mm-hmm. and with the exception of Sally Bradshaw who was really his right-hand political person super talented he decided to try kind of a new approach in the second campaign so I was incredibly proud to be put on that campaign team as media consultant and it was a great fun campaign in 98 and then you know a year later uh more or less in you know late 99 or mid to late 99 I signed up for the long shot John McCain campaign with my good friend, John Weaver, who was kind of my partner in trouble there. And uh, it was uh, it was, you know, I was really lucky because I had a hell of a fun time with Jeb and a hell of a fun time with McCain. I have a weakness for these long shot presidential campaigns. And Jeb was very cool about it. Most of my clients, because I was working uh, for John Engler, I think I worked for Tommy in the '98 race. Yep. yep. Uh, I worked for Terry Bradshaw. Uh, a lot of the Republican governors, they were mostly for George W. Uh, Engler used to give me a lot of to tease me about it, and um, uh, but they were all cool. And the, the thing that was kind of remarkable about Jeb was after McCain ran, uh, and you know we had our, our our glories, but we did not win the nomination. Uh, I worked on Jeb's reelect in 2002, and. He's never really confessed it to me, but I kind of know from the water cooler that he got a little bit of static from the White House about that. But (laughs) he was incredibly loyal, which I will always uh, deeply appreciate. And I think Jeb's a very smart Paul, and he also knew that it was was in his interest to have a consultant not only that he worked with well and knew him from the, the, the 98 campaign, but was also somebody who wouldn't get shoved around by the White House in 2000. Because, you know, I had I, worked for his father. I, I, Ailes had brought my, uh, my buddy and my partner at the time, Alex Castellanos, and I on the media team in 88. Uh, I'd worked in, for Dole in 87 as kind of a junior guy. And then we, we, we were working in 88 for his dad, which was tremendous, and worked again in 92. So I had a relationship with the family, but I knew I was not really on the White House political staff hit parade, having worked for McCain, which was fine with me, to be honest. And I could at least in 2002 give Jeb independent advice. And I wasn't worried about, you know, uh, being invited to lunch or an Easter egg roll to White House or something like that. So it worked out. And the 2002 campaign was fun. We won a big reelect victory. And I've been proud to be associated with Jeff Bush for just about, you know, every day of my political career. I think he's an astoundingly good person and the kind of reform conservative the party needs more of. Much like a Tommy Thompson or a John Engler, I might add.
0: Right, right. Well, so you mentioned that you kind of have a soft place in your heart for these long shot candidates. Does that mean you're going to be uh, working with Bill Weld?
1: Well, I sent him some money, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) Stuart and I, Stuart Stevens, who's his longtime consultant, and I were talking, and uh, uh, we're going to kick some ideas around. But. uh, no, I think my wife would kill me if I uh, if I went tromping around the winter of New Hampshire yet one more time. But I you know, it's funny. In the, in the, I, I've been proud of my client list over the years. I don't really do candidate campaigns. I've kind of gone corporate and initiatives. But um, I in the presidential thing, <clears throat> I, I've always thought it, it's always more fun to kind of run the guerrilla campaign against the odds. Mm-hmm. And for somebody you think is the best person. So I, I've really been involved in two of them. Uh, McCain in 2000, who, who was terrific, and before that, Lamar Alexander, who oh, right. um, kind of recruited me, and uh, we ran another long-shot campaign. We, we didn't have quite the press love that, uh, that John McCain did, but we you know we, we came a lot closer than people think. We almost clipped uh, Bob Dole, somebody else I have a lot of regard for, I have to admit, right. uh, in, uh, in the New Hampshire primary. And w- Lamar was a joy, because we started at 1% with nothing and we always made it, and that staff uh, were just a bunch of talented people and were lifelong friends, and I got to work for Lamar later when he uh, he ran for Senate and took the seat uh, that uh, Fred Thompson, his good friend, had given up. So right. I've had a long association with Lamar Alexander somebody else I have a tremendous respect for. And I'll tell you, when you do a long-shot presidential campaign, when you start a year out with no money and 1% in the polls and people are laughing at you, and you go through that experience, which Lamar says is like running through the desert for 20 miles to try one three-point basketball shot and rimming the ball Mm -hmm. uh you learn a lot about the grit and character of the candidate and what i saw in lamar and what i saw in john mccain they're just they're impressive people because that is a test and you know we've got some democrats who are going to go through that process now uh originally from behind maybe now in these internet days not as far behind as long shots used to be in dark horse campaigns but uh that's where you really learn who they are, is putting them through that process. And I'm going to be interested to see how they uh, how they all do.
0: Yeah, well, let's turn to that right now. Uh, you know, the, the, the Democratic presidential primary is sort of in full swing right now. It seems like everybody and their brother and sister has announced that they're going to run for it. Um, you know, we, we've seen a little bit of up and, and down here. I mean, I think uh, Beto O'Rourke at one point, he was the flavor of the day, and now he seems to be uh, dropping quite a bit. I don't know if you saw the... Um, uh, the, the recent story by uh, Margaret Carlson. Did you, did you see her, her take on Beto O'Rourke?
1: You know, I saw like a log line about it. I haven't read the actual clip, but I think I know what it is because you can feel the inside narrative go up and down. I mean, it's like fashion, you know, leopard skins in, leopard skins out, and it changes every week. I, I, I tell people to be very cautious about that because we have an industry based on political opinions, particularly in D.C., <clears throat> excuse me, often on cable TV, That has a reckless speed to make grand pronouncements. It's kind of like handing you a plate full of flour, sugar, a couple of apples, some butter and cinnamon and say, what do you think of my apple pie? Well, it hasn't even been in the damn oven yet. So the voters work on a much later timetable than the opinion business does. The opinion business treats every day like the Hindenburg, because the hotter the day, the more money they make. So there's always a siren going off on cable TV. You know, we learned that Beto workers is left-handed. What will that mean in the Iowa caucus, our experts? And half the experts have never done anything on a campaign. So what I've learned through hard experience, and other people who've been through this process uh, and done a lot of these campaigns will tell you, <clears throat> is... Look early at the voters, to figure out what they're shopping for in the primaries. But look late at the candidates once they've been through it and people start to land. It's kind of like a shopping mall. They they an old-fashioned, you know, indoor shopping mall. They show up and they walk around the mall looking at windows for a long time and then they maybe pick three stores to get in, to take a look around the store, and then they go back to two of them and then they pick one and sometimes they change their mind and go into the other two stores. So I don't, there's a, there's a guy named Milk Gortzman, who's now, now passed away, but he was a legendary uh, lawyer and political operative in the old Kennedy machine, Democrat. And he had a great line that uh, some of us old guys call the Milk Gortzman rule, which is don't believe any national poll till after the first contest, uh, because it's all totally fungible. And my Murphy corollary to that is be very wary of polls in Iowa and New Hampshire till after Thanksgiving. Mm. because there's plenty of room to move. And this early stuff, well, it, it gives Wolf or you know, uh, Chuck Todd or somebody a reason to push a siren button, uh, is not nearly as predictive. It's more of a parlor game. So I look at the voters, and what I'm seeing among Democratic primary voters, because you can talk to them with polls and other research, and they'll tell you there are kind of three overlapping piles. One pile wants a fighter and you know they all want to fighter, but one pile really resonates to that one pile's interested in identity you know having a president who may not be another boring white guy and then there's a pile that's very t- tuned into progressive economics corporations and rich people pay more to do more maybe it's you know uh, uh medicare for all or single payer there are different issues that fit into that matrix so people who have a good store in some of those things if they can go through the process, if they can have some money to get a message out, they're going to sell some tickets later. And I can't tell right. you if Bernie will hang on or Elizabeth Warren will usurp them, or Joe Biden will be the fighter and, and lock up a big part of the primary at that. Or one of these new fresh candidates who are not only fighter, but generational change, you know, like a Mayor Pete, even a Beto. He's got talent. He'll, he'll get on stage again. He'll mm-hmm. have a great moment, probably. So, you know, it's it's. A long, complicated process in a couple of early states, and everybody who says they can tell you how it's going to turn out based on candidate stuff now
0: is bluffing. Yeah. Well, I think if you read a lot of the stories right now, you're hearing that uh, a lot of Democrats are, are trying to kind of unify against Bernie because they're scared to death that he's going to get the nomination. I mean, he certainly right. has the staying power to do it. He's got the finances. I think he's got, you know, the Bernie bros that are that are on board with him. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think they will coordinate to sort of turn on him and get him out, and will it be effective?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. So there's, there's a big strategic issue, and we had that a little bit with Trump in the Republican primaries last time. So every campaign looks at Bernie and says, all right, he's got a big hunk of vote, and he's totally self-funded through small dollar donations. In other words, he has a money machine that doesn't care what the normal gatekeepers think. That's a big change, by the way. In the old days, you had to go be able to work a small room to donors uh, of either party or institutions that have influence in either party, uh, labor unions or business, depending on which party you're working in. And once you were good in the room, you got the money that paid for the campaign that got the voters. Bernie's already got his people giving him low-dollar Internet donations, so he never has to work in smart room and impress anybody uh, because they wouldn't like Bernie if they did. So the question is, can he run that up or does he have a ceiling? That's question one. I think he probably has a ceiling, but we're seeing. Question two is your question. What do people do about him? And the problem is all, all these other campaigns, with maybe the exception of Warren, are going to take polls and they're going to see that the 20% who really like Bernie, really like Bernie. And they're going to say, all right, we can try to cap Bernie, but we dollars we spend on that probably will never get them under 20. Our job is to fight with our other people for the remaining 80. So they all kind of turn in each other to become the winner of the bracket system to be the Bernie alternative later. So while they're all on that frequency, who will actually try to go after Burning thinking it's not a good return on bucks. When if you're Booker and uh, Kamala Harris, you're eyeing each other because you both want to bounce into the African American vote in South Carolina. You know, if you're uh, one of the fresh new, I mean, I'm sure Beto wakes up every day and says a uh, uh, quick haiku about, you know, hopefully Pete will come down with laryngitis for a few months. You know, you have kind of your immediate perceived competitor. And so, it's funny, back in, back in in 2018, all the other campaigns in the Republican primary thought that Jeb ought to go after Trump. Most of them were sucking up to Trump. Ironically, the campaign now long forgotten, the candidate uh, who was the most anti-Trump at the beginning, other than Jeb, who was always in the same place, was Lindsey Graham, who is now, you know, uh, uh, over in a whole nother frequency on that. Right. But most of them kind and, of sucked and up Scott, to Trump. And Scott
0: Walker, for that matter, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So they, um, they all wanted us to do it. And we'd take polls and find out Trump voters might go to Cruz, but they weren't going to Jeb Bush. And so our problem was, what do we do about Marco Rubio and John Kasich and Chris Christie and the people who are competing in our, for our voters? And the polling was very clear on that. So everybody thought, we, because we had the most money, we should spend our money helping somebody other than us get elected. And you know, we, we were not on that frequency. And I wish I had a time machine. Because I would have loved to get the the Rubio guys who had money, uh the Kasich and Christie guys who had some but not as much money, and say, All right, you guys want to go after Trump? Here's eight million of our dollars. You guys all throw in a million. So we have five more million. None of them would have done it. because um, you're 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 following the strategy to maximize your vote against your most likely competition. And you kind of know because you ask voters who they're torn behind on polling and they tell you. So anyway, I think there'd be a lot of talk about Kathy capping Bernie, but not a lot of muscle, the only different strategy might be Elizabeth Warren, who I think is a little underrated, by the way. The Mm. D.C. early thing has totally turned off on her, and I think it's too early to tell. I think she has assets people are missing. Uh, But she can go right after that Bernie vote, maybe prize some of it away. Much like Cruz really didn't do early, but I think probably should have done with Trump.
0: Right, right. So usually when we talk about the primaries, we think uh, after Iowa and New Hampshire that usually we have about three tickets out of there. Uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. It seems to me that there's likely you know, maybe five tickets out of those two. So among the Democrats right now, you know, of course, we take this with a grain of salt since we can't see the future. But, you know, as it stands right now and given the three brackets you've talked about, who do you think might have those five tickets uh, to move forward after maybe South Carolina?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. Now, so I'm toward between the three ticket and the five ticket theory. And I think the thing that's changed to maybe make five tickets work is now with digital streaming video, all the stuff you can do where you don't need advertising money the way you used to. People may be able to build their own kind of knot of voters because, you know, the old formula you, you try to come out of Iowa top three, New Hampshire top two, hopefully winning New Hampshire, and that gives you momentum that both brings in money you desperately need because you're broke at that point. It also brings in you know, tens of millions of dollars of obsessive media attention, which serves as a proxy for advertising to help you run the rest of the country because you don't have enough money really to advertise everywhere, even if you're successful early. Um, after the long slog where it's very easy to go broke you know, this year, before the voting starts in the first quarter of next year. So the question is, if you're Beto or you're Bernie or you build your hardcore that keep giving you low-dollar donations and stick with you a while because you can communicate to them pretty cheaply digitally, you don't need the $100 bucks of TV, you might be able to last longer. So um, I would say when I look first at Iowa for the top three to five, I'm thinking, will Biden hang in or will he underperform? Will Biden even collapse this year? I think it could happen. I, I, I know and like him. And if he can own fighter, I think he has a ticket to the you know, the, the, the top, one of the top positions. But he's undisciplined and he is not generational change. You look at the history of Democratic primary, they tend to vote for younger candidates. Mm-hmm. So the jury's out there. But Biden starts with something. Bernie starts with something. But if you look at the new fresh people, I think clearly Mayor Pete's got something going on now. I would say he wins the prize for doing the only significant thing in the early, 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 don't get too excited preseason, which you'd he has taken himself, to use baseball terms, from double-A ball into the show. Mm-hmm. He's broken into the thing out of nowhere, which is a hell of an accomplishment and may be a harbinger of more of that to come because he has talent uh we know that when Beto gets in front of people Beto sells tickets so I'm not willing to totally throw away even though he's underperformed all his hype out of the box there's still a lot of road to go so you got one of those two guys will definitely beat the other in Iowa and probably have some momentum then you've got Elizabeth Warren who's you know putting a big organizational effort into that caucus could sell some tickets on campus If people get a little bored with Bernie, she can get into his messaging and give him some competition. Again, I think underrated. And she could bounce nicely to New Hampshire because she's from a neighboring state and there's some familiarity there. And she's not doing too bad in this early stage up there. You know, she's opened her store and she's getting some traffic. Uh, Nobody's buying yet, but they're looking. And then finally, there's kind of an interesting, you know, Kamala Harris, the senator here from California, she basically pitched that she was young, generational, attractive candidate, charisma, and she could really run the table of African-American voters who are super important after Iowa and New Hampshire. But if Cory Booker, who's kind of an Iowa-friendly candidate in his tone, I've worked a couple of governor's races there and a couple of caucuses, uh, if Cory can beat her in Iowa, come in third or fourth, uh, and steal the spotlight, he's the kind of candidate who could also do well in New Hampshire, and then he might run the table in the South. People are discounting him now. I wouldn't I wouldn't jump to that. So I would not be surprised if out of Iowa in the top four will be one of the new fresh candidates, probably Joe Biden, but maybe declined. And I've even got one long shot bet that Biden won't make it to Iowa, but I'm probably being too uh, unkind to him. Uh, Bernie, though, maybe depressed. Elizabeth Warren may be breaking through. And finally, Amy Klobuchar, who's also in kind of the Biden category of not a super liberal, can win a general election, can appeal to white middle-class voters that the Democrats have given away to Trump. Uh, And she is right next door in Minnesota, also culturally very friendly to Iowa. Now, she will never have the small-dollar fundraising base that a Bernie will, or even a Beto, or maybe eventually a Mayor Pete. but So money will be a big problem for her. She can't get momentum. She's got to break through early. But if she does, I think she could run the table in New Hampshire, too. So Hmm. I've kind of named everybody, so I guess I'm not (laughs) winnowing it down too much. But I will say this. Whoever comes in first in Iowa, unless it's a completely new face, they should be wary of the secret best campaign slogan in New Hampshire, which is screw Iowa. Uh, I'd love that if I were a candidate to break through and be a surging second in Iowa against a Biden or a Bernie, somebody like that, and then try to break him in New Hampshire with momentum, which I think could happen. And then, of course, you go down to South Carolina, where if one of the African-American candidates does well early, top three, maybe top four, uh, they could get something going down there and then try to slingshot into the heavy labor caucus, which is also heavily of color in Nevada, particularly Latinos there.
0: So uh, let me follow up with that. I want to ask one more question about uh, the Democrats, kind of where they're headed, uh, and then we can switch over to the Republicans and, and, and take a look at their future. So, the final question here about the Democrats is what's, what's going to motivate them more the desire to get the fighter, the identity politics, the progressive, or the desire to beat Trump? Uh, can they help themselves from going further left, or are they going to try to state their claim at beating Trump?
1: Yeah, that is the million-billion-dollar question, and I tell you, I don't know. That's what I'm looking for. The rational thing, if you, if you poll them, the highest thing people say is beat Trump. But there's some psychology in that polling, and we, we're, we've done a little work on that out at the uh, USC Center for the Political Future, which is an institute I help with here in Los Angeles, where when, when a Democratic primary voter says the most important thing is to beat Trump, the it says, oh, they mean a moderate who will appeal to working class white people in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. No, they might need somebody more progressive because they're a progressive, and they think the way to win is to get Bernie more airtime because everybody will agree with Bernie's message on health care and equality you and know, making corporate America pay its fair share. So there's some projection in that winnability question that you have to dig deep into. So I just don't know. My guess is that the identity vote, um, there would be a backlash too. Because I think Trump is gonna to try to engage with a, a candidate on racial identity. Because look, I've called him it before. I think Trump is racist adjacent. That's one of the great shames of him. That's one of the reasons I think he's unfit to be president. And I think he'll he'll be tweeting about slave reparations and all that kind of bait, and that'll cause turbulence in the primary. But I think some Democratic primary voters are going to think, let's not give him the general election theater that he wants. But again, I'm totally guessing. Right. And if if uh, if Kamala or Corey or you know Juan or Castro or you know if some candidate, in, in, you know, identity can be gender identity too. Maybe it's Elizabeth Warren if Warren if she really turns up a feminist message. She, uh, you know, there's if somebody like that breaks through early, um, then. Like anybody who breaks early, they can run the table. So I think that's a hell of a choice for the Democrats. I, I tell all my Democratic friends go read Mark uh, Lilia's book, The Columbia Professor, which is a liberal. He's a real lib, but a good guy and a smart political science and historian. And he, he has written a critique of identity politics from the left, which is all about winning. And it's a quick, smart essay book. Get it on Amazon. I think we put out his material on our website. You guys ought to bring him there to speak. He's impressive. And that's an argument every liberal ought to at least hear before they vote. Mm -hmm. So I'm dodging a question I don't really know. I would like to add one more thing before we switch to Republicans. There's one great myth out there I'm trying to knock down because like all these Washington fads, somebody says it and 25 people on cable who've never run a campaign start repeating it because they don't know, uh, which is this whole thing about the California primary has moved up so it's more important, which is true. California has always been a huge bank state, a money state. You, you can't swing a dead cat here in L.A. and not hit a Democratic candidate out here raising money, as well they should. But the politics of California is more important because it's moved early. The, the, the misnomer, though, is because this is a state where a lot of people vote permanent absentee by mail. The ballots go out before the Iowa caucus. So there's been this presumption that either hometown Kamala, who does not have the state locked up, Uh, or somebody else will get all that early vote and it won't matter. Well, the truth is, voters here, some vote very early when they get their ballot, but most hold it. So I think the California vote by mail will really start happening after the New Hampshire primary, not before. So the whole idea of Island California banking all this vote is a myth. And I think there will even be a higher incidence than normal of people holding their absentee ballots. And you 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 can literally walk it in or mail it the the, I mean, the, uh, the last week before the primary, and it'll count because of the postmark. So um, the, the whole California votes early, so it's all on, on its own in a, in a bell jar somewhere. Is crazy.
0: Huh. Well, so staying on California then just for a second. So uh, I, I've heard that California is thinking about changing the laws such that they would block anybody from being on the ballot if they refused to share their, their tax information. Of course, that's You know, that that's that's going after Trump and his refusal to do that. Um, What do you think about that? I mean, it does seem interesting on the one hand that, you know, they want to uh, to to require candidates to do that in order to get on the ballot. But at the same time, removing someone from the ballot is a very, I don't know, anti-democratic thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, I'm torn.
1: I, I was part of a plot last year after we lost the midterms when the the Trump panic inside the party was at its highest. Then Bernie popped up, and all the Republicans stopped. Started thinking, God, they're going to nominate some somebody so crazy, even Trump can win, and relax more than I think they should. Uh, anyway, I was kind of for that for New Hampshire, um, but I wasn't really for it for the simple reason of as attractive as it is, because it would drive the president crazy. I think it's bad precedent, and when you start doing a litmus test for ballot access, as you you know um, your question is kind of premised, you're down a really slippery slope. Yeah really when they get into litmus tests and everything. So no, I think it's a bad idea. I, I haven't looked into it lately about the odds of it really happening, Right. but, uh, I, uh, I'm I not for candidate poll taxes, so to speak, of what you can get on a ballot or not.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we, we've got to be real careful about that sort of thing. I think that's absolutely right. Um, all right, so let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the Republicans right now and I know where, where you see their future. I know you've talked a little bit about uh, demographics. You've talked a little bit about the difference between the, the mathematicians and the priests. You know, Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that. What do you mean?
1: Sure, sure. Well, that's an analogy I've used for a couple of years which is a debate on who the party ought to appeal to mathematicians. And, you know, I'm obviously one of them. We say, look at the demography of the country that's changing America over 65 voted for Mitt Romney for president. You know, we're doing great with old people. The problem is you can't count on their votes for long because they tend to elevate to a, a whole new election in the sky. Well, young voters are killing us. We, we can barely get ele- arrested as a party, you know, under 35. And, over time, they have a very sneaky trick. They become all voters as they get older. So we're, we're on the wrong side of compounding demographics, which is the worst possible place, possible place to be. And when you also look at the demography of that changing America, America under 18 is only about 57% Caucasian, and those are the only votes we really get. So we're literally giving away our ability to be a majority party by concentrating on grumpy old white guys like me. So the question becomes, what do we do about that? Well, you know, some in the party are like, well, we better start printing up, you know, uh, Spanish bumper stickers and hire Maharaji bands. It's a lot more fundamental than that. We need to change the content. We need to reform conservatism uh, that, you know, I'm a right-wing nut. I I, I don't like the government leviathan. I want to, you know, give everybody in the country a copy of The Road to serfdom. But we also have to become in immigration and other policies we have, a lot more connected to helping the, you know, institutions of of advancement, how you move up in America. we got to be the party of the American dream for anybody, or we're frankly going to wind up as the minority congressional party representing gated communities. So that's what us, or we, mathematicians say. The priests say, no, 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 have faith. Get your friends to listen. listen to Russ Limbaugh. It'll convert them. Um, it's working fine. We, we just need to turn up the volume on the message we have. And of course, the great tragedy for the, the priests is in the 2016, excuse me, for the mathematicians is we were standing there the night before the election and all we mathematicians said, all right, great. We nominated Trump. He ran a priest message campaign. We're going to get slaughtered. He hired every drag in the party to work for him because he couldn't get a decent mathematician. Um, this thing is going to be a case study of what to do wrong. And the priest said, no, no, tomorrow at noon, that third tree from the right is going to be hit by a purple lightning bolt that's going to spell Trump's name and blow it up, and he's going to beat Hillary Clinton. And we all laughed. And guess what had happened? So in the party now, the priests have a lot of cred. Now, you look at the numbers of the election, it was like a margin of error deal. He won legitimately, but... you you get an insurance company computer and you go through Michigan through who's died. It's far from certain Trump would carry Michigan again today if all the other facts were the same as election day and his political position has at least as of today declined. So we'll see. I have a feeling that it'll be a revenge of the mathematicians next year, though there is a great angel that the priests count on to come swooping in and, and help a lot and was involved in that purple lightning bolt in 2016. And that, of course, is the Democrats who may nominate a crazy candidate and may put Trump in a position where he's got something to work against and will get in the way of, you know, what the country's trying to do, which is fire Trump. So um, we simply don't know it's going to be an exciting uh, uh, election, but that debate is going to rage on. And in the last two years, uh, at least until the midterm elections, it's been all about the uh, the priests. Now, I will say one last thing as a, as a mathematician and sticking to my uh, disproven mathematical guns, at least in 16. If you adopt the Wall Street phrase that I like of mark to market, which basically means, all right, we have this factory here. If we had to sell it today, what is the price we would get? What's the realistic market price? May not be the real value. The value might be more over time, but you know, if we had to liquidate it, we mark the value of the asset to today's market. And in, in campaigns in politics, there's a lot of talk every day. Just turn on cable or. The internet, talk, 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 it's fun. It might be right, it might be wrong, but the mark-to-market event is election day when people actually vote. And in almost every election day since Donald Trump was remarkably, and to his credit, legitimately elected, the Republican Party's been punished. The special elections in 2017, 75% of the time the Democrats did better than their normal number. The midterm elections, we got clobbered the worst since the Watergate year. The off-year governor's elections got clobbered again. So... You know, the priests have been extremely short on miracles in the age of Trump, other than the original one at the election, and now are going to settle the argument, and that's going to have a lot to do with the future of the party.
0: Yeah. And I, I will say, one of the interesting races to look at here on the ground uh, just recently was our state Supreme Court election.
1: And exactly.
0: I think a lot of people wrote that off. Uh, Brian Hagedorn was the, the, the judicial conservative. He was running against Lisa Neubauer, who was the, the judicial liberal. You know, he pulled that win out. I don't think a lot of people saw it coming. But if you look. Yeah, at- I would
1: have bet you 10 bucks against it. You know, yeah. I was hoping he'd win. But uh, when I saw you out there beforehand, because the. Uh, You know, it was kind of lining up in a rough way, but he did it to his credit and, you know, in a low turnout election. But he did it. Yeah. You would have won 10 bucks or 20 off me.
0: (laughs) I would have asked for more than that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but she, you know, she she did have a number of uh, comments against him. A lot of people thought were sort of anti-religious comments. He was able to to use that to his advantage, and it could be the case that if you know national or other statewide Democrats make arguments related uh, to that, that, that Republican candidates or conservative candidates could use it to their same advantage. I, I don't know. We'll see. But going back to your mathematician's comment. You know as a social scientist, a political scientist, I look at these numbers as well, and you can see these things you can see trends uh, the gender gap is bigger than it has been ever before. The gap between younger and older voters is increased greater than it ever has been so what uh, what what can Republicans do at least from a policy perspective to try to turn that around
1: well that's that's the billion dollar question I mean when you look at you know the x-ray of the Trump campaign, the mark to market of election day, it's pretty fascinating. Because Trump underperformed in a lot of areas that were reasonably um, Republican. The more suburban areas, he underperformed Mitt Romney in a lot of the kind of Republican, college-educated white people suburbs. And it didn't always dramatically underperform, but definitely underperformed. And, you know, Mitt, another old client of mine, lost. So how did Trump do it? Well, he hyperperformed in kind of excerpts. And kind of what, what I would call as an old Michigan guy, metal bending county. It's like Saginaw County is a good example up near Flint. It's not Genesee County, which is the hardcore Flint County, but it's an adjacent county. A lot of blue collar there. Places had economic pain. Started to have a recovery under Obama. Definitely gotten a recovery now. That's a candidate where we. Ha- that's an area we have in the state Senate elected Republicans, but it's it's hard weather there. Uh, Obama carried it in his reelect by, I think, double digits. I mean, carried Saginaw comfortably, and Trump won it by a point. So in those places, Trump ran way ahead of Mitt and really performed. It's kind of like a spike. So the question is, is the future trying to double down in places like that, which is a very different Republican coalition, or is the future trying to get back college-educated white women, white suburbanites, uh, the kind of people we've won with before? and you know that is an argument in the, in the in the party now getting the trump coalition put back together is more of an inside straight cuz demographically it is a it, it's got a dimmer future as far as just sheer numbers of people you appeal to so you know michigan the the, the number people should remember is if you take kind of the magic trump states of wisconsin Michigan and Pennsylvania, all places of republics we haven't carried in a presidential since the mid-'80s, either
0: 88
1: or 84. Of those states, about 77.5 million total votes were cast among those three. Uh, Excuse me, 13.5 million were cast. And Trump's total margin was about 77,000 votes. So this thing was a squeaker. And the question is, can you keep drawing to that inside straight, or do you play what at least historically has been an easier game to get college-educated, you know, white suburbanites back on the Republican wagon and then try to cut into the rapidly growing Latino vote, which is moving into the middle class where we ought to be able, able to make an appeal. It's not about locking up their uncle. And can we, the fastest growing uh, vote in the country is actually the Asian vote, which is small but growing. And we even do worse with Asians than we do of Latinos. So it's, um, it, it's whether you play the demographics of Tomorrow, which is what the mathematicians like, but it means policy changes. Or do we draw to the insight straight on the other demographics of kind of yesteryear? And, you know, when the Democrats help us like Hillary did, and when you have kind of a magic storm candidate like Trump, it can clearly work. But can you replicate it? Can you brand a party on that? Can you win back the House doing that? You know, we're going to find out.
0: Yeah. Well, one other thing Tommy used to say was, uh, you know, good policy makes for good politics. And, you know, I think that's absolutely right. So what kind of policies do you think can appeal to these uh, voting groups that, you know, as you point out, are, are sort of trending away from the Republican Party? I mean, we're thinking about things like energy reform, transportation reform. Um, you know, I think tax reform is going to be something that, uh, you know, regardless of anybody's background, they're typically going to support one way or the other, as long as it's done appropriately. Um, but what, what are those issues that you think could help Republicans reclaim those voters who have uh, been, become skinnish?
1: Well, if you look at the successful rep- politicians, I mean, I made my career doing Republican governors and senators in blue states, either in the Midwest or places like Massachusetts or California. And you've got to play in the other side's end zone. And Tommy knew that. He knew that policy is the key to politics. Angler knew it, uh, uh, Ridge knew it in, in Angler in Michigan, Ridge in Pennsylvania, and, and many, many more, Jeb in Florida. The, the problem is now we're out of the policy business on the federal level. I mean, the House caucus is basically in the, the, the who are we mad at grievance business. You know, they, they were used to being the minority. They know how to be against things. Then we got in the majority, and we still tried to be against things in the majority. There just wasn't that much appetite to do big reform policy. Instead, we did all the usual politics of her and stuff like that, and a lot of steak dinners, a lot of lobbyists. But we, we lost the connection that we were the reformers. We are the people that change what doesn't work about government. And, and this was the great loss when the Thompsons of the world and the Bransteads and the anglers all these folks kind of rotated out is Republicans who didn't mind running a government. You know, they were they knew how to shrink it, make it work better, use it to make changes, welfare reform being a great example in the Midwest. And now the the, the the federal guys mostly make a list of stuff they're against. And right now they're a hallelujah choir for Donald Trump, who's totally a grievance politician. He's the Bernie of the right. You know, let's make a list of what we're against. So I, my guess is the big policy rotation will have to be and ought to be one. we got to get back to being fiscal conservatives. You know, here we are hitting the trillion-dollar number and deficits under a Republican president. It's a national shame and a blight on our party. So we, we growth economics are great, but you have to have some fiscal discipline, too. Second, we, I think we should own education reform. Jeb did it successfully for a decade in Florida, and it was a Democratic issue, and he took it, and he broke the Democrats on it, and he made it a Republican issue. So, you know, some sort of accountability in the public schools, which is your gateway issue to, to the issues of, um, of, of basically middle class advancement in America and, and lower class. How do you get out of poverty? How do you work your way out of poverty? How do we give you a public school system that can give your kid a better life? And that means some tough political fights, but it's the institutions of advancement. Um, have to be buttressed and we have to change some of the incentives and how government and politics work to reinforce that because the Dems are going (coughs) to, excuse me, the Dems are going to do a favor. They're going to go to lefty economics where there's a market now because people have lost faith in the, you know, the American dream. So they're going to go to government. So lefty economics and identity politics are coming. And that leaves, leaves us an opportunity not to run resentment politics, but to replace it with something better that people who work damn hard for a living and don't have enough retirement savings and are worried their wages aren't going up, what something they can invest in um, to to believe they'll get a better life and we can deliver it. So, you know, the reform conservatism is the answer both for the country and the party, but we're so locked in the grievance business now, and the Democrats are learning it on the left, that it's hard to change because the primary voters— who are demographically a lot older and whiter than some of the voters we need to get over the next decade, are locked in on the grievance stuff. And so, you know, the incentives inside the party when picking candidates work across purposes with the kind of policies we need to grow the party and maintain political power. Interesting. That's a real trick, and that's going to be an endless and uphill battle, but it's one we must fight. Or again, we're, we're going to be in the minority congressional party of the gated community, Watching a labor party of England in the 70s kind of uh, uh, mentality take political power in America under the Democratic left. And that'll be a tragedy most for the people the Democrats claim to help. But it'll be it'll be bad for all of us. So but if we're w- incompetent in politics, we're going to lose power.
0: So if you could uh, maybe take a look. Give me some thoughts on this. What's, what's one thing that Trump has done that you like? And you can't say judges. <laughs>
1: yeah no 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 i agree <laughs> the judges thing is like the uh, the magic bean um I'll, I'll name a couple of things one w- with the caveat of he can't tolerate uh um accomplished talented people so there's short-termism <laughs> to this but he, but he can't he just destroys them because he's like Stalin. it's got to be a yes man you know if you you look at him twice in the hallway your whole family's dead in a year. Um, in the stalin world it's not that bad of course but uh it's some of the same insecurities but he put jim madison some good people in charge of national security and he turned them loose and we've had tremendous victories against isis um and al-qaeda and some of our enemies in the mid-east because he he let them do what they knew how to do that was a, a huge win he was much better at it than obama now conversely he's not a real geopolitical thinker so he's screwing up the atlantic alliance with our european allies which is a big problem and of course, both he and Hillary were incredibly guilty of bailing on the trans-Pacific, you know, the trade partnership TPP, which was really a geopolitical agreement to to bring some to protect our interest in Asia. We've blown that, and now you know this this Chinese trade war. If he can avoid it, he'll get credit, and I'll give him some for moving it in the right direction, but if he stumbles into a real trade war, it's going to be a disaster. And then finally, the, the way he's given more legitimacy to the butchers of North Korea you know, literally makes me sick. Um, so again, I was supposed to praise him, so let me wind back. The, the ISIS thing and all that, I think it's been pretty good. And while they probably made some mistakes, the basic idea to unshackle the animal spirits of the economy with regulatory reform has created tremendous growth in the economy. And that is now we're seeing wages creep up, real wages, which is critical um, to making people's lives better. So I think uh, uh, he's got an economic story that part of it began with Obama. But he deserves credit on the regulatory reform side for doing doing a pretty tremendous job.
0: Yeah, no no new regulation unless you get rid of uh, two existing regulations. I think for a lot of conservatives, that's a big win. Yeah, huge win. So, all right, final question for you. Uh, if you could tell me, who is your favorite leader throughout history and, and why?
1: Oh, that, that is a great question. You know, I, I'll give you a basket because it's hard to pick one. And I'll start by disappointing everybody with going to the old Churchill uh, analogy. But I am a he had plenty of flaws. I highly recommend the unabridged Brooke memoirs from World War II, which was his military chief of staff. Uh, without all the editing, the, the newer one that's out, because it's hilarious and interesting. And Ellenbrook had the great comment that I think a lot of the British leaders thought about Churchill. We uh, were, were you know, being driven out of our minds with him, but we'd be lost without him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like Lloyd George a lot, too, who was uh, uh, one of the great British politicians in both the Reform Era and the First World War. Right. Um, and of that era, Clemenceau I admire too. The, the French, uh, th- there's a rumor about him. It's actually not true, but it's such a great, uh, great story. It's hard to give up that he was so tough. He once got, this is true, was shot during a speech, and he said, ah, small bullet. He kept and did the whole speech. Led the French in World War II, and then said he wanted to be buried standing up, facing Germany, the, the Tigers. <laughs> uh, so so admire Mike... a guy like that. He also had a great art sense of humor. He once had, sat next to Lloyd George. You know, they took a million casualties. And, of course, the insufferable Woodrow Wilson was up there droning on about the 14 points, and Clemenceau allegedly turned to Lloyd George and said, Jesus Christ himself had only 10. <laughs> 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 Still makes me laugh to this, this day. So uh, Lee Lu Kwan of Singapore, another great hero, uh, prevented them from becoming a poor communist hellhole. And, uh, uh, of course, on the American side, Lincoln, uh, uh, T.R., and Harry Truman. I have a lot of regard for all of them. And the truth is, I'm a little soft on Nixon. I take him now over Trump in a New York minute. Great geopolitical strategist, flawed human being.
0: Well, so you you identified eight people, and by my count, four of them uh, are Americans. I guess the last question I have is, Mike Murphy, why do you hate America? <laughs> yeah. No, no,
1: I uh, I'm a total American chauvinist. I just I came up uh, studying diplomacy and and uh, uh, the politics of Europe, so I'm just. Uh, I'm a little deep into that, but um, yeah. I can find, uh, uh, well, I'll uh, I'll give, uh, let's see, what's one last great American, to, but I want to go to history, not contemporary people, because I don't think they're really judged until it's all uh, all uh, done. Uh, you know who I'll nominate? Somebody I, I really admire just intellectually? Charlie Munger.
0: Charlie Munger. An honest
1: thinker. Rare thing to find. Poor Charlie Almanac He's Buffett's partner. He doesn't get all the press, but totally brilliant guy and incredibly concise thinker. And he's almost always right.
0: Well, all right. That's interesting. I'm going to have to go read up on American. Charlie Munger. I, I don't know enough about Charlie Munger. I will have to do that. Um, Mike Murphy, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. We always enjoy your insight and your wit. Uh, You have an open invitation to all things at the Tommy Thompson Center. Thanks, Thanks a ton for being here with us.
1: I'm a big fan of the center of Tommy and all you guys. Anything I can do for you. Thanks for having me on.
0: You bet. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tommy Thompson Center on Public Leadership. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe to this podcast and leave a favorable review on it. It helps us to reach a wider audience where we can spread the Thompson Center love more broadly across the state and across the country. The Thompson Center is dedicated to research and programming to bring people together to solve some of Wisconsin's biggest problems. For more information on the Center, check us out at thompsoncenter.wisc.edu on Wisconsin.